This is The Guardian. Hello, friends. It's Grace here. Now, as some of you might know, Dave Myers, better known as one of the hairy bikers and a friend of Comfort Eating Podcast, passed away this week. He had been living with cancer for a few years. I know I'm not the only one floored by this news and I'm sending my condolences to his family, his friends and of course to Sai. I will always remember the day Dave Myers rang my front doorbell, walked into my lounge and came to talk to me for the pod. I can see him right now, how dapper he looked that day and how starstruck we all were. He was there. And of course, the stories he told us. I wanted to reshare Dave's episode with you now as he is so honest about his childhood and career and his friendship with Sai and I think this gives you a good idea of the extraordinary life he had. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Myers. Just a warning, there is some strong language in this episode. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. New Year, same old kitchen, same old me, hopefully same old you, because you have been absolutely brilliant listeners so far. Happy New Year to you all. You find me here preparing a fantastic snack. Yes, it's the last of the mince pies. It has to be the last of the mince pies. And I'm having them with a large scoop of brandy butter. God, I love brandy butter. Why can't we have that every day? I am not entirely sure what day of the week it is, but I am aware that I have a guest who knows a thing or two about comfort food, and he's coming over today. It is hairy biker Dave Myers. The hairy bikers have been cooking on our screens for nearly 20 years, which is not bad considering they were initially just looking for an excuse to eat food, ride motorbikes, and in their words, 
chat bollocks. The pair's new cookbook, Everyday Winners, is out now. Being one half of the nation's best-loved bromances, I'm guessing you, like me, probably feel like you know Dave a bit already. But never underestimate the power of comfort eating. It always reveals a little more about people than you might expect. He seems like the loveliest man, and I honestly can't wait to meet him. I mean, I am just spreading butter on a pie, really. (laughs) Spreading butter. Spreading boozy butter on a pie. Dave Myers, welcome to Comfort Eating. Thanks very much, Grace. It's an honour to be here. Uh, This is a momentous occasion because you are my first Cumbrian. I am a Cumbrian. Yes. And you're my first Cumbrian on Comfort Eating. Yeah, of course, but you come from the capital, whereas I was just from the, the deep south in Baron Furnace. You know, Carlisle <laughs> was somewhere we dreamed of aspiring to. She's got a castle and a cathedral and everything. Very much the Manhattan of <laughs> Cumbria, <laughs> yes. isn't it? It's- yes, yeah. You are the first person to be on Comfort Eating who actually cooks for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what ultimate comfort food that you've brought to share with me today. What are you hiding at the moment? I've, I've smelled wonderful smells. It feels like it's a complex snack. It's it's not complex. It was born out of inventiveness, I think, from when I was six or seven years old. Okay. And I've got to admit, I, I can say hand on my heart, I've had it twice this week um, for, oh. for a breakfast. And it's, it's a bit... Anyway, shall we? Yeah, yeah, unveil, unveil the snack. I have no idea what is in here. I wouldn't get too excited. <laughs> I loved, when I was a kid, tin tomatoes. <laughs> we always used to have tin tomatoes on toast. So, it's tin tomatoes on toast with a couple of rashes of bacon, but... I have a bit of Marmite on the toast too. No. Oh, it's lovely. Oh, it's God. I think I discovered... Visually, it looks like something from a horror film because it's fleshy. It's The tin tomatoes are oozing and then there is a a slight whiff of yeast about it. Yeah, it's the Marmite, you see. But the the thing is, the tin tomatoes, you get the, the juice in the bread. So really, you know you have a panzanella salad? Yes. Yeah, think of that when you eat it. <laughs> I was foolishly trying to eat that with just one hand. No. And I saw the error in that right away. Hang on, I'm getting it. Excuse me. <laughs> but it is, I, I've tried to be really honest with this, you know, because I, I work in the food world like you, yeah. do, and yeah. we both had some of the most wonderful food in the world. But but this is really what I find comforting. Do you realise that all the time you're talking... I am just stuffing this into my face. I know, I've suddenly realised if I'm eating, I can't talk. <laughs> it's actually delicious. Yeah, but what, what you have to do with the tomatoes, and I did discover this as a young boy, if you put the tomatoes into the pan, just as, yeah, there's too much juice. Uh-huh. So I suddenly realised if I, if I left them to cook for a while, and I used to do the cooking from when I was little, they would get thicker and more tasty, mm. which, of course, it's reduction. But yeah. now, I'm, I must admit, I'm on a can of San Marzano tomatoes and not... Not the super cheap ones that my mother used to have. Does it have to be white bread? No. I like a nice piece of sourdough, to be fair. But again, you know, we've once tasted with years, improved with style. Bit of wholemeal will do all right. That isn't actually proper delicious snack. You've actually booked the trend of some of the absolutely disgusting things I've eaten over the last uh, few episodes. Thank you. That's a great compliment. (laughs) 
Dave, I understand that you were somewhat of a surprise addition to your parents' lives. Yes, I mean, my mum went to the doctor and um, it was thought she had an ovarian cyst. Oh, and he was called Dr Morrison, this Scottish GP. And he said, Mrs Myers, this is the biggest bloody ovarian cyst I've ever seen. You're pregnant. And I was, <laughs> she was, because those, she was 41 and she'd never yeah. thought, told she couldn't have children. I mean, that, that's it, you were classed as a very geriatric mother. By yeah, but not geriatric, it was my dad, because he, 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 this, it was his second wife, he was quite a bit older than my mum, so my dad was 55. But yeah. he was brilliant, he was a brilliant dad, because of course, he had time for me, and he, he could, could retire, and actually he did a little bit of cooking. But yes, so, so I was a surprise to both of them, really. I mean, I think I was conceived... Uh, this, after the war, they started going on like holiday and they, they went to Switzerland, which was a huge thing for the pair of them yeah. from Barrow. You yeah. Know? <clears throat> and they flew in a Douglas Dakota. I've still got pictures of them. And um, and they were going to do the grand tour of Italy the next year, but instead it was, I popped up. So, you know, <laughs> I always think there's something of the Swiss about me, really. <laughs> You've written about what your mum was like during your early childhood mm. in Barrow and Furnace. She sounds like a real vivacious character yeah she was she was she was a big lady she was sort of you know no no she wasn't big tall she was quite small five foot three but quite broad yeah the sort of lady that alan bennett describes as a lady with a leg at each corner and uh, that was my <laughs> mum and during the war she worked as yeah. a crane driver in the shipyard yeah and um i think she got strafed one night and that was it she gave the crane driving up until, you know, after the war, she went and worked up in the lakes in a hotel in Grasmere. And then she came, she came back and she drove cranes till I, was, till I was born, really. See, the ladies became crane drivers because it said they had a gentler touch. Right. So they kept the ladies on after the war. Yeah. And um, so the ladies were surprised, like, because they'd all had their kids and my mum, I was the first. So they used to knit me baby clothes in the cabs. And with pictures of the cranes on from the shipyard and Vickers Armstrong. So apparently I had these really cool jumpers when I was a kid. <laughs> that must have been amazing, though, to feel like your mother was the kind of person that could drive a crane. Yeah, yeah. My dad was a paper maker, so obviously he was a sensitive one. Yeah. But it was in a mill. It was a factory. I was looking at something you'd said about your mum cooking plate pie. Yeah. And, you know, when I read that, I, I, w I was so happy that somebody else knew what plate pie yeah. was because it's something that my gran used to cook and I never, ever hear it mentioned. So just to explain for anyone listening, it, it's basically just a pie, but it is made in a plate. So you need almost half of the the uh, the contents, don't you? It's quite a shallow yes. pie. Yeah. That's all it, it is. It's shallow and wide. So yes. it looks generous. Yeah. So I always think of... When I think of my grandmother, I think of her almost making it with just one hand because she just didn't eat, she didn't even have to think about it. No. I think a lot of northern households, they always had, the, the, it was a dinner plate, inevitably a thick one off the market. Yes. And it was chipped and obviously it had been baked. So it was quite brown yes. and unsavoury looking. Yeah. But most homes had one and that was for your pie. The plate was buttered and then the pastry went on. And then it was basically savoury mince. Yeah. It was just mince meat, maybe an onion, just cooked and then filled on the plate with a top on. But the beauty of it is, it's, and Si used to have it as well over in Newcastle, but yeah. they call it a cut and come again pie. Because oh. you, you take a slice, but you want more, you cut and come again. Um, I, lo I love that. Yeah. Cut and come again. Yeah. 
And you know, when you can't stop that, I used to be terrible because I was a fat child. There's no, there's no getting around it in polite terms. And we're greedy, really, yeah. and round. I used, to, I used to get to a point where I'd had my designated portion of pie. Yeah. And then I'd just have a slither. Then the slither yeah. would grow. Yeah. And in the end, I get to the point of no return. And then you just think, well, I'm, oh, I'm, I'm in I've it now. It. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in deep. So things change very suddenly when you're eight years old and your mum is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Yeah. Your dad has to take early retirement from his job at the paper mill. So how do you and your dad adapt to that? It was it was hard. It, it was very hard. You know, we were in a two-up-two-down in Barrow. So the idea of stair lifts don't exist. And this is why I feel such a strong compassion for... I was a young carer by default. But when you're a kid, it's, it just happens. You don't question it. You just are. You just have Yeah, and I think, sadly, I don't think things have improved much these days. You know, if anything... There was community then that helped. Mm. But on the food front, I mean, well, my dad, of course, he'd been in industry, industry all his life. We used to have Tyne brand tin mince. Yes. Smash. Mm. And Farrow's Marifat peas in a can. Oh, do you know, I love a Marifat pea. But I came on one time from school, I think about three years, this was a staple diet. And he's there in his slippers. And he said, I said, I looked down at this mess and I said, what is it? And what he'd done is... He'd mixed the three ingredients together and he said, I've made a risotto. <laughs> and even then I thought, that's not a risotto, Dad. Something's got to change. But by then I was doing the shopping for the house. Um, so that gave me control because my dad was, I say, because he was that much older. So hang on, how old were you when you had to first set off down the shops with a... 12. A, a list that you'd made yourself? Yeah, 12, 13. Bloody so I remember it was when the, the big supermarket had opened. By then we moved mm. to a council estate. Yeah. Because it was on the ground floor where the wheelchairs and stuff. Yeah. That did make life easier. But remember, there was a superstore opened. So you go down with your budget and try and yeah, get a tenner. And I could buy what I wanted. I remember I came back with a pizza once. Nobody knew what a pizza was, but it was it really was the worst cardboard disc yeah. with not really quite good tin tomatoes and grated cheese on. And of course, my parents were just like, I'm not eating this. So you must have started to cook for both of them. Mm. What? What was on the menu? I mean, first first time I cooked for my dad was when it was when we first realised she had multiple sclerosis. She mm. must have been about I was about seven or eight, and my dad was on a night shift, mm. and I heard a thump. And Mum had gone to bed in the afternoon. I was just playing downstairs, you know, in front of the telly, and I heard a thump. And Mum was on the bedroom floor, and she couldn't move, and we didn't know what was wrong with her. And I thought, mm, no. she, she was very calm, and she said, "No, it's all right. Well, your dad will be home at ten o'clock." I just thought it was nothing for me dad's tea. So I remember I cooked him a cheese and potato pie and I found the recipe in this cookbook that had come with the, the gas cooker. And they must have, yeah. the gas cooker must have, they must have bought that just after the war. Yeah. And um, I made this cheese and potato pie. And it was funny, I worked on a thing and I went back home and, um, and they found that cookbook and I did actually cook that pie again. So were there times when you and your dad ever got out of the house together? Yeah, well, before my mum got really, really ill, yeah, he, he always had a motorbike. He was one of those northern chaps who a motorcycle was a mode of transport. 
the thought of it never crossed his mind he'd own a car. So he always had the motorbike. And yeah. as I said, because he was older and he retired early, it was great. He was the best dad. I always say, like, some of my mates are having children late in life and they have a huge crisis of confidence. And I'm going, no, no, do it. It's brilliant because my dad was better than anybody else's. Yeah. But when he, when he was 65, I was still on the back of the motorbike and he was taking me fishing yeah. and, and shooting. And uh, Well, we're not shooting. I'm not talking like the posh people. I'm talking about <laughs> tra- trying to you know, nail a rabbit in a field. <laughs> So you were always really a carer and going into your teenage years, you've never really been carefree. You've always been caring for someone. Did that affect the kind of teenager you became? Yes, yeah. I had alopecia as well, which is quite ironic seeing I was known as a hairy biker. I had no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. Started when I was eight, funnily enough. And but um and i was you know kind of it was really really bald you know it starts off with alopecia areata so it's it's kind of where did it start in, on your hair oh, on your, yeah, it's on here your there hair. and everywhere so it's not like you're going bald bald and that was the time before it was it was cool to be bald and um i think my my only role model was yul brinner in the king and i um i think that the the, the more ill somebody gets the more the, the harder it is to look after them the more yeah. work it takes so, and it was both of your parents that were very Yeah, well, what happened was I came day. home from school one day. My dad had had a stroke. And, Where was he, um, in the living room? Or? Yeah, yeah, he was just in a chair and he was just, like, over on one side. My mum my mum was sitting here because, obviously, nobody it, it, nobody could take her to the loo. So it was all... It was all, well, Again, I walked into chaos. It was in the... I was in the sixth form at school. I was doing quite, I've always been quite good at school and I've done quite well. And I just walked into chaos and after about a week... I was looking after both of them. It was a district nurse came for the regular visit. I did phone a doctor, and the doctor told me to give my father aspirins and put him to bed. That that was it. And I was on my own for a week. I didn't go into school, because obviously I couldn't. And then, then the social services came, and they said, um, "There's uh, one of your parents can go into hospital. Uh, which one do you feel you can better look after? And I knew my mum wouldn't oh. get better. And I knew my dad would, so I thought my mum really, and she she didn't get well. She went into hospital, never came out, and she was she lived there for five years, you know. Um, hard decision really for a seventeen year old to make. An impossible decision. Yeah, yeah. My dad did get better, so he was functioning, and you know he he understood. But actually, you know, when you think back, it was his wife, you know, and to me, I was just surviving and trying to do what I could. It was hard. Was there anything at all that gave you happiness? Oh, my mates. Uh, my yeah. mates. I had some great friends at school. Funny enough, the kids the year above me, um, through the art department, it was always, we had this amazing art teacher called Mr Eaton, and he was very flamboyant. It was a northern boy's grammar, and he was the one with the red midget sports car, the matching ties and everything, and he could draw. It was amazing. And there was kind of like a chap called Graham who was older than me, a year older, he went off to Goldsmiths to do art. I followed in his wake to Goldsmiths. And there was a third member, actually, who went to Goldsmiths, yeah. all Mr Eaton's boys. But within that, they, they were always... You know what it's like in the North, they're, they're like the pub culture and everything yes. in a working-class town? Yeah. So, you know, they would take me for a pint. But you needed a pint. I mean, yeah, yeah, you but needed I had, to go I had, and... that, had friends like that. Yeah. And actually, they were always really, really supportive. Um 
and so that that was it really what did and you eat together well we still was a friend of mine pete who actually became a director of british telecom so we kind of did all right us northern lads but pete we used to cook these it was there's always been a chinese food culture in in barrow um, you know, the Chinese takeaways, and some of them are pretty good. You know, it wasn't all kind of terrible food and packed with onions and monosodium glutamate. And it was, I think it was pound thirty for a takeaway with your fried rice. So Pete and I used to do our curries. So when we come back from the pub, which could have been everything, like a bag of rice, we used to make them with tuna fish or sausages. No, hang on a minute. <laughs> there is no such thing as tuna. Tuna fish curry. There really isn't in our house. I suppose it was like, but but then it was curry powder. Yeah. So yeah. I suppose the French would call it, you know. They call you know, it va, va, Well, they, the French have a really fancy word for curry powder, isn't it? Like va de vin or something. Va de vin. Oh, curry. Yeah. You know. So, so this, this would be, should be. Tonno or Rio Curie. Let me see, it sounds a lot more delicious now. Yeah, but we used to charge them 30 pence for it. So it was a winner, wasn't it? We had more money to spend on beer. Right, hang on, wind back. You were yes. selling homemade tuna fish curry to who to people that were. Well, our mates, you see, because we used to £1.30 for a takeaway. So this was a bargain at 30 pence. Now, in those days, we're talking about four pints to the pound. Yeah. So really, it's a win win. So you got an extra four pints, and plus you got your carbohydrate at the end of the evening. Hang on, were they coming to your house and eating it? You yeah, they could come to my house, you see, because my parents weren't functioning. <laughs> so this, you know, you know, it's all the best of adversity. So slowly kept the noise down. They were out the way. This is it. Every cloud has a silver, silver lining. Has a silver yeah. tuna curry flavored lining. Yeah, and funny, now Pete and I are in our in our sixties. We did meet up to repeat the experience. And, but the thing is, because he's a, been a keen cook, and obviously what I do for a living, yeah. we really couldn't capture that authentic <laughs> naivety of what yeah. we used to serve up to our mates, you know. It was just a bit, bit too fancy, really. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So you've got all this responsibility and horrible things that have happened, but you're still really looking ahead to the future and you still apply 
to study fine art at one yeah. of the most prestigious oh, yeah. places in the country. You go to Goldsmiths, University of London. What did you actually know about London? When nothing, you- <laughs> nothing. I used to, uh, I say my, my, my world was, my, my friends, it was Graham who was the most amazing painter. And I say, he's still, you know, he's actually made a living out of his brushes. So I kind of followed in Graham's w- wake. And, but I remember the first time I came, so I used to smoke a pipe with with tobacco. And so I'd just sit there thinking I was a pre-Raphaelite. You know, we all were, <laughs> we're obsessed with the pre-Raphaelites, Holman, Hunt and Rossetti. Yeah. And there was three of us. We used to go to the walker and look at the, the exhibitions. So obviously the pipe came with it. So when I was painting, I thought this is going to make it better, you know. So anyway, I turned up in London for my interview. I had my portfolio over my arm, which is kind of homemade, you know, with like some kind of strappage over my shoulder. And I can remember I had this red denim jacket, green corduroy trousers, a pair of red kickers... <laughs> Hang on a minute. And a scarf. It's red and you've got green corduroy trousers. This is quite the outfit. So I went to Goldsmiths, got out at New Cross, had my interview. So I got a place. I think it was something like 3,000 applied. And I was in the intake. It feels like you weren't intimidated. No, ignorance. It's happened twice in my life, actually, that I've been completely ignorant of circumstance. And and it's it's helped. Yeah, you you didn't really know what you were walking into. No, to realise it was a massive deal. No, I just wanted to be my mate Graham in London. <laughs> it sounded great because, you see, at Goldsmiths, it's the, it was the freest art school in the country. Yes. So, you know, ultimately you could do what you wanted. But you've gone from being a carer, and yeah. I mean, and I've done caring yes. as well, and I know that your time is so regimented. The days actually fly by pretty quickly because everything needs to be done at oh, certain yeah. times. Yes. You've got so much responsibility and then... You're at Goldsmiths and you're free. Yes. The grant was actually pretty decent. Yeah. And I was working in the summers in the steelworks in Barrow. So I was I was okay. But the free it was good. It was very I was very nervous. I still had no hair then, which we found quite intimidating, really. So did you look like a skinhead at this point? I mean, did you shave it all off? or I shaved off what I had left, yeah. yeah. No, I look like a big embryo, Grace. <laughs> like, I had no eyebrows and eyelashes. I wasn't going to pull, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? It's like my mate Graham, the one I'd followed in his wake, was devastatingly <laughs> handsome. Um, was he, I, was I, he really handsome? Yeah, I, he still is, God love him. But no, at, at, at that point, I was like his, his mate, you know. And we shared a flat in Peckham, 56 Asylum Road. It was £9 a week each. We shared a room. And there we set up to paint. Um, and, and did you cook together? Yeah, we did. There was there was a, a Turkish cafe down the road that we discovered, and that was epic. You know, like spaghetti bolognese that really was made from meat, and it had some degree of herbs and spicing. Yes. I just thought, oh, this is this was a game changer. Yeah. So really, the grant didn't last long. <laughs> so I kind of, and then of course the, the yeah. Chinese food. I go to Soho, yeah. and so that's when I started really cooking because I could buy the ingredients at the supermarkets in Soho. I could bring them back. And so so I did finish the first term, absolutely the £200 overdraft, and I bought about two stone. So what was it like? You've had this amazing time in London, and then you have to go back to Barrow and you work in the steel yard. That must be a huge change again. It was. It was good, though. Again, the camaraderie. My uncle was the foreman there, my uncle Harry. And so I was in the building department. And um, I loved it. I actually loved it. The people were brilliant. Did you turn up in the tartan trousers with the pipe, though? No, I turned up in my bar. I tell you what I did do, though. I turned up in Dr. Martin boots. And um, 
This was still the the and I'm, I'm there, you know, me, me oxblood Doc Martins and me, I had me overall. Let me give you a boiler suit. And then what did they do? They put me on a cradle. You shut the furnaces, a big electric arc furnace, maybe about 10, 15 meters across, and they lift the lid off. Well, obviously, all the hot metal and the bricks inside, it's it's roasting, to say the least. Yeah. So there's two of you go down in a cradle, and you have to my job was to hold the big chisel while this, it was big brine, it was called, hit that chisel and you cut the steel hawsers, but you're on a metal plate. That sounds scary. It was, but the men there were so caring. You know, yeah. all I can say is in terms of community, they, they were brilliant blokes, except of course... I had Dr. Martins on. Why wasn't I wearing clogs? I thought this is too much a northern cliche to wear clogs for work. I thought, come on, since then. I thought that was a cliche. I didn't actually think that the clogs were... Yeah, they do. They keep your feet going. My Dr. Martins caught fire. <gasps> uh, well, they just melted the soles. So that that was it. So, they, so when they finished laughing at me, they, they were like kind of gumdrops on my feet. And, you know, you take your packed lunches and stuff. And there was a stove there. Not that there was much cooking going on. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of t- rice pudding straight from the tin. You can't beat it. No, it's all right. There was, there was, yeah, there was, yeah, yeah. There was a case of bullying. There was one fight there once, and and I did see somebody get hit with a tin of rice pudding as a weapon, kind of ambrosia in the mush. But no, it was nice. And Steelworks <laughs> breakfast were, were really inspiring, you know, because I, I came back from art school being lardy and full of curry, yeah, and all manner of things. Um, What's the Steelworks breakfast? You know, like the the black puddings you see in the butcher's windows that are the, the rings. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. a whole one of those. Yeah, a whole thing of Cumberland sausage, a couple of eggs, tin tomatoes, um, and then you know it's just everything and loads of toast. And of course, you're working. Um, and, and again, in the Steelworks, you always got access to cold milk for some reason. But it's nothing yeah. tasty better. Just a pint of. I, I would never drink milk now like that, yeah. but a pint of ice cold milk or a quart of ice cold milk. But I think I think for me it was belonging. Yes. And after what I've been been through, you know, it was belonging. And th- there's some extent of care, even if it's a bit rough and ready. They're still looking after you. And you know, even if I was, I was doing a horrible job, there'll be somebody there keeping an eye out for me. A, a lot of those traditions were, were very valid and gave people a, a decent quality of life. One of the facts I love about you is that you worked as a makeup artist for yeah. many years. And I often wonder how this motorbike loving turned steel worker in the early 80s that you end up painting faces at the BBC. So could you do my makeup? That's what I'm... Oh, God, it, yes. Like you could. Oh, yeah, yeah I used like to, yeah. Interesting. Oh, God, well, 23 years, Grace, yeah. There you go. I mean, I, I, go. I, I, I got nom- nominated for two RTS awards as a makeup artist and two RTS awards as a turn on the telly. But no, I was... I love it. I was working as a car park attendant. It was an advert for trainee makeup artists. And again, there was thousands applied and they took 10 of us on. And they were looking for people with fine art degrees. It's the time that they'd done like I, Claudius with Derek Jacobi and the artistic side was becoming more and more important. But I didn't realise he had to do hair as well. At the time, I was living with a French au pair in Blackheath I applied for two jobs. One was a trainee picture frame restore at the National Gallery and one was the trainee makeup artist at the Beeb. And I remember before the interview that the, the French au pair was sharing the flat with. I got her to tip a handbag on the table and go through what the bits and pieces were because he said you'd have to do a straight makeup, an ageing makeup, and then a piece of hair work. I don't know. Again, yeah. I was saying before, I had no idea what was expected. So I turned up at Television Centre uh, with the contents of a handbag in, in my head. 
of being from the steel. And one of my references, by the way, was from British Steel Corporation. But how did you even begin? Because makeup is difficult. So how, not, what? I, like... no, right. So they said, you just need to do a street makeup. And they had a, a grease base, a liquid base, yeah. and a pancake base. Okay. Well, you see, obviously, use a liquid base. Yeah. But you see, I don't ever see my mother With the, use the compact, yeah, you know, the, the Max pan- Factor. Yes, yeah. The cream puff. Yes. So I thought, oh. and I, it looked to me it looked like a cake of powder pain. Yeah. So I started with a pancake, which is notoriously difficult to get level. Yeah. But I had a certain facility. And I can remember the, the, yeah. the, they were two of the senior makeup artists, a lady called Pam Meager and Cherry Alston, very exalted. So they were there with a the notepad. So I'm very interested to use the pancake base. Why? I said, oh, it just seemed, seemed appropriate. Goes, Very good. I was like, <laughs> and I got through that. Then I had my interview and I, I, I got the job. Yeah, because I'd only ever seen the films you see, like the, the Munsters and the Adams Family, where it was all the Westmores and these great Hollywood dynasties of men. But what I didn't realise is spinning this is I was the first male makeup artist at Television Centre. Yeah. And I just, I just applied myself and got through it. So you're a makeup artist and then you cross paths with the man who would become your fellow hairy biker, Cy King. Tell me about the first time you ever set eyes on him. Well, I applied for a job on the Catherine Cookson dramas. Do you remember those ones in the northeast? And it's called The Gambling Man with Robson Green. And um, I used to love these Catherine Cookson dramas. And the production values are fantastic. I did about seven of them over nearly two or three years up there. And I remember I got the job. So they took me down to meet the crew and they're in a pub called the Egypt Cottage. It's next door to what was old Time Tees Television. It's a car park now. And I walked in there and the, the crew are there, some being indifferent, you know, the media and they've got the white wine spritzers and the you know, <laughs> sandwich. And then Sai is only in his 20s then, standing by the pool table, looking like some mad Viking. He's going, <laughs> Julian, what have you got? He said, it's a chicken curry today. I'll have that. It's in a pint of lager. So anyway, well, I'll have what he's having then. And we got talking over the curry. And he was the second assistant director. That's the one who's responsible for all the calls. And so um, Sai si and I did the work this, that afternoon. And uh, we, we just got on like a house on fire. We both come from kind of like almost single parent backgrounds. Mm-hmm. The one thing, though, know, that we both love motorbikes. Yeah. And we both love food. Yeah. And we both loved eating. Yeah. And he, he, I went around to his house for Sunday lunch. He had two little, two, two young children. I remember he cooked the most wonderful roast lamb and all the trimmings. And he sold me a motorbike that was terrible. <laughs> he absolutely ripped me off. Um, and that's how it started, really. He, he, he came, I was living in the Highlands. And um, he came up to the Highlands to take the motorbike back. But then we were just really, really good friends. And Sai would come up, you know, whenever he'd finished work. And, and Sai had the idea, why don't we just make our, try and make our own programmes? But hundreds of people that work in telly mm. probably have dreams that they will get in front of the camera and that they'll right. maybe get a pilot up and running. Yes. But you, you did it. We did it, yeah. We wrote this treatment together called... I think the secret was somebody said, you know, if you're going to write a book, write it on what you know. Yes. And we set up we knew about food, we knew about eating, cooking, riding motorbikes and talking bollocks. So we, we, we wrote it up in this treatment called Motorcycles, Food and the Search for Nirvana. Not exactly snappy. 
I would watch that, though. There were six producers we sent it to that we'd worked with, that we liked, and it just shows. You, you, you must send that letter if you've got an inkling. And, I mean, 20 years of Harry Biker's programmes later. Nearly. The impression I get is that you are actually genuinely friends. Oh, we are. We've been through a lot together, you know, uh, over the years, bereavements, tragedies, you know, the whole the whole lot, you know, divorces and uh, not, not to each other, but you know what I mean? It's We've been through a lot of the harsh stuff as well. He had a brain hemorrhage in 2013 and he was proper poorly. Yeah, it was a shock really. It's funny because it was in 2012, 2013, um, he wanted to take time off work, and I didn't because I've got that. I've still got that. I'm from Barrow, you know. You don't turn work down, mate. You know, not when it's flowing. I said, no, no, no. I want to go home with the boys. That's when I did Strictly, uh, which I absolutely adored. So, but we're due to go back to work because he had a brain hemorrhage, so we ended up having like a year off. Um, he was okay, caught it in time. But even then, the morning it happened, we'd been out. Uh, we were on a book tour. And he kept saying, it's a funny headache, you know. And I was saying, well, so have I. You know, if you spend so many hours in Costco signing books, you do get a bit. Um, and that morning, because I'd stayed over at size, and, and we got the fish key because I bought a load of fish to take home. He bought fish for the weekend. And we were sitting there in the fish key eating bacon sandwiches and tea. And it was that day he went home and had a, he said he was watching the rugby and the players slid off the screen. And the next thing I knew, he was in intensive care in Newcastle. So I went up there. He went there. Yeah, and he was, the people told me that he was, he'd be all right. He was stable. He put a stent in. But it was quite funny. It was, he was obviously in the land that time forgot, really. And the nurses were great. And he was, you know, it, it was, it was okay. Did you take him any gifts? Well, no, I said to him, he said, Dave, and this is his hand, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to get sentimental now. And he said, you couldn't nip down to Marx's and get us a pork pie. He said, I'm starving. So I just, I, I, honestly, I, I'm not lying. I went down to Marks and Spencer's and I'm, I'm, Breaking bits of pork pie. He wasn't on a ventilator. <laughs> but he's, he's like trying to discreetly eat this pork pie while I was in intensive care. Um, That's friendship. We never get bored with cooking and we never get bored with the food world. But when we, we find ourselves at a food festival yeah. and we're sharing the bill with Gordon Ramsay or Michelle Rue Jr., you know, we're in awe of these people's talent. Yeah. Our talent's different, mm. um, but, but it's a real buzz. You've done countless cookery programmes together. How does cooking on set compare with cooking at home? The big difference is, I, I don't know, it's probably a bad analogy, really. When you cook on the telly, it must be a bit like making pornography. Because, do you know what I mean? It gets you going. It's all there, but it doesn't deliver. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but like, at home, yeah. Yeah. you see, we learn so much yes. on a series. I mean, you know, we, we just had our 25th book out. And so, obviously, all the research and the, well, look, we haven't got a restaurant because we spend all the time working and playing with food and eating. So, and when we're filming, you've got this, these recipes, and you know that that a family at home would love them. And so, I do, I do cook at home, and I, yeah. I like to show off, and I cook all the time. Yeah, you know, I, and, I, and I love it. And it, that's the difference is that you get to share the food with the people you love. And you know, even Sai and I will will. You know, like my birthday or something, if my wife said, we'll, we'll get together and cook. Do you? Oh, yeah. We have a, have a boys' night, yeah. <laughs> so we've just welcomed in the new year, and I'm very curious, uh, what's a hairy biker's approach to New Year's resolutions? I think the older you get, the more conscious we are of staying healthy and alive. You know, we're having such a good ride in life that we want to keep on doing it. 
And I think the, the, the resolution is really to, you know, just look after each... Well, Si and I look after each other, and I think for me, to look after myself more, really. Um, you know, to make sure that I've got another couple of decades of riding my bike and cooking, eating and talking bollocks, really, Grace. 20 more years, at least, of hairy bikers. Yeah, but the hairy zimmers by then. The hairy zimmers? Yeah, it'd be all right. won't be much hair, that's slipping back and all. I'll buy that book. <laughs> yes, processed food, everything <laughs> in a blender. <laughs> Dave Myers, thank you so much for comforting Oh, you're more me. than welcome, Grace. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Jack Claremont and Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Mixing and sound design was by Sammy L. Anani. If you like Comfort Eating, please leave us a review. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And use the hashtag ComfortEatingPod to get in touch about the podcast or share your own comfort foods. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.